The Astrea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton Book Two The Men of the Sea Chapter Four In Which Astrea Learns the Lore of the Men of the Sea Part One Astrea lay between sleep and waking, trying to recapture a dream in which Lindy was telling him something that he could not quite hear. A heavy fist pounded on the cabin door, and a voice jerked him out of his reverie. "'Wakey, wakey, wakey! Daylight's burning!' The door opened. A man in a blue jacket entered, reached across Astrea to open the scuttle in the ship's side, and watery light came in through heavy glass, revealing the narrow cabin. Astrea swung his feet out of his bunk and reached for clothes that had slid to the cabin sole in the night, trying to order the confusion of events that had brought him to the ship. "'I'm Mirak, and you've missed breakfast. I'm to see that you're rigged out in shipboard garb. You've a lot to learn, and little time to do it in, so roll out, grab your breeks, and get moving. You can wash later.' Astrea struggled into damp clothes, gradually recognizing the voice that had spoken to him just before he fell asleep connecting it to one of the sailors who had crewed the boat the previous night, and recalled the name that Adramin had spoken in the upstairs room at the Black Sheep. Astrea looked at Mirak and mentally drew his face in squares, head, hair, chin, and eyebrows, each bounded by a firm, heavy line. He was clean-shaven, his dark hair blunt-cut to the level of his earlobes, graying at the temples. His lips turned down at the corners, and downward lines led away from his deep-set eyes. His expression, like his voice, suggested resolute optimism despite plenty of experience to the contrary. When Astrea stood to pull on his jacket, Mirak started along the dim passageway without waiting to see if Astrea was behind him. "'I'm not your nursemaid, but I'll teach you whatever I can. Right now—' You're on your way through command rank quarters, and lucky you are to be here, I suppose. Sailing Master Adramin's cabin to starboard, Master's day cabin astern with night space in the port quarter, three empty cabins on each side because we're undermanned, the forbidden room behind that door amidships, the what? asked Astrea, cinching his belt as he hurried to keep up. You'll find out soon enough. Companionway, don't call it a stair, up to the deck and down to the stern hold, where the spares and replacements should be if we had enough of them. Forward hold is where the fish are, or would be if we were catching them the way we should. We go up. Ten steep steps, and Astrea stood on the deck of Cygnus. He took a deep breath of salt-fresh wind and looked about. Above him the great belly of the sail curved upwards and outwards to its peak, which slanted over the sea beyond the ship's side. Mastrea turned around slowly, conscious of Mirak watching him to see how he reacted to the heaving sea all around. Remembering how Yan had been spooked by not being able to see land, and determined not to seem fearful, Mastrea deliberately grinned at Mirak. "'Nice morning,' he said with a confidence he did not entirely feel. Having spoken, he saw that it was indeed a beautiful day. Mare's tail clouds curled overhead. The waves were blue-green in the troughs, and their crests flecked by the occasional white cap. Close to the companionway was a deck-house, through whose open door he could see the upper half of a spoked wheel, 
taller than the man who stood beside it. "'Ship's wheel needs constant tending,' said Mirak. Estrella nodded twice, first to show he had heard, then a second time as he realized that his lessons had begun at a level that expected him to know nothing whatsoever about the sea. He was about to say, I know, but bit off the words just in time. At first Estrella had done nothing but wake, obey, and try to keep up. Now that he was more aware of his surroundings, he began to appreciate how the sunlight slanted through sails and rigging, throwing shadows that slid back and forth on the deck in time with the motion of the ship. Above him was a boom as thick as his body, holding the foot of a salt-bleached sail so bright that his eyes watered when he squinted upwards at its huge belly. Ahead was a second mast, and further still ahead a third, each with its own sail. Men wearing faded brown shirts and calf-high canvas breeks were swabbing the strangely seamless deck, overhauling the boat in which he had sailed the night before, and going about other duties that Estrella did not understand. As he followed Mirak past the mainmast, Estrella noticed the man's strength. He walked with an easy, rolling gait that reminded Estrella of Gar, but the comparison only accentuated the differences. Mirak was stolid, unflinching. He had a grim humour, but he lacked Gar's spirit, the quality that Estrella had seen in the confrontation with the learneds, when Gar had tipped back his head and vanquished the overbearing green-gowned man with a glance. The memory took Estrella back to the world from which he had been abducted. He felt a confusion of emotions. Remembering Gar brought a pang of loss, but it also recalled his last words, telling him to find the men of the sea. Mirak gestured for Estrella to walk beside him. A glance revealed that his nose had been broken at some time in the past, and that his mouth had one corner higher than the other, making Estrella guess that behind his good humour lurked experiences that most men would prefer to forget. Estrella decided it would be best to ask only questions with direct answers. "'How big is Cygnus?' he asked. "'Well, if you go to the after-rail, and pace your way to where one more step puts you in the salt-chuck, it'll take you about forty big strides,' replied Mirak. "'The tallest mast is roughly one-third higher than she's long, and we have room on board for a hundred people, twice as many if they come in pairs. But we've barely half of a full complement now, which makes for a lot more work.' "'Work?' "'Keeping her going.' Repair, refresh, restore, patch, splice, clean, grease, what these fine folk are doing. Men looked up from their work to watch them go by, but Mirak offered no explanation of who Astrea was. They went down the amidship's companionway into the shadowy lower deck, where at the end of a narrow passageway Mirak knocked on a door, and opened it on a small space containing a lean old man sitting behind a tiny lamplit table. He squinted up into Estrella's face, his mouth sagging open to reveal more gums than teeth. One of the old man's eyes was blue, while the other gleamed pearly white like the inside of a shell. Estrella, this is Will Landborn, said Mirak. Estrella, the old man quavered, did you come back? No, Will, this is Estrella's son. Kick him out in command gear. Right, strip down, lad. Estrella glanced from one to the other and took off his shirt. 
Green light from his bracelet lit his skin and threw shadows across his face. The old man pushed on the table and rose unsteadily to his feet. Once standing, he swung his fist to below his throat. "'Commander Estrella,' began Will. "'My name is Estrella, but I am no commander,' said Estrella, choosing his words with care. "'I have no right to your salute, and I don't deserve the respect you gave my father.' for which I thank you. I hope some day I can earn it for myself. Will swung his head to look out of his good eye at Mirak, who nodded. The old sailor's eyebrows rose. He sucked in his cheeks and started to pull out the drawers that covered three of the four sides of the space in which he worked. Soon Estrella found himself wearing clothes like those he'd seen on Adramin, soft-soled, almost heelless boots that pulled on without ties tight-fitting black shark-skin breeks, and a jacket over a white shirt, all of which fitted him better than the clothes he had borrowed from Walt's Inn. Will showed him where doubled flaps lapped over themselves to make the jacket and its pockets waterproof, and indicated how to position his green stone under one of these openings. When he'd finished changing, the old man put two full kit-bags at his feet. Three shifts of daily, one of dress.' "'Saved for your father's return,' said Will. "'I'll try to wear them well,' said Estrella. As he spoke, he became conscious that he was wearing clothes made for, and perhaps even worn by, his father. He tucked one of the bags under one arm, and was reaching for the second when Mirak swung it to his shoulder. Estrella saw Mirak and Will exchange a quick glance he could not fathom. They retraced their steps back to Estrella's cabin, where Mirak opened a locker below his bed and dropped the kit-bag into it. A measured thudding echoed through the ship. Mirak pounded his heels in time to the sound, and indicated that Estrella should do so as well. "'All hands,' said Mirak. "'It's five heels. You can tell by how fast they come. Command does the first five slow. We repeat quick up and down the ship. It's to call the ship's company, and it's happening for you. Let's get about it.' When Estrella's head was level with the top step of the companionway, he saw sailors coming from their work to stand side by side, facing the stern. They moved into their places deliberately, economical with their strength, as men do who have long outgrown the energy-wasting movements of youth. They were all clean-shaven, and wore their hair cut at earlobe height. Their faces varied in features, skin tones, and expressions, but there were no young men or boys. All were at least one generation older than Estrella, and some were much older still, as stooped shoulders and sloping backs made clear. Some of them limped or shuffled. One lacked an arm. One had a puckered eye-socket instead of an eye. Accustomed as he was to the injuries that marked many of the village fishermen, Estrella noticed that many of the men had been seriously damaged at some moment in their lives. There were missing fingers, scarred cheeks, and the hunched or uneven shoulders of men who have sustained bad falls or accidents probably involving thick ropes and heavy spars. All wore brown, their sturdy breeks stopped well above their ankles, their feet were bare, their jackets were weathered brown, and their shirts close to white. He looked again and noticed two white-haired women he had missed at first glance. The crew stood two to three deep, 
formed up from one side of the ship to the other. On the deck, at the feet of the front rank, was a line of metal studs that separated the crew from Oron and Adramin by several strides. On the starboard side, Adramin stood casually, as if bored. His black ankle-high boots, close-fitting black breeks and jacket, and even blacker hair, made him stand out in contrast to the sailors. But even more distinguishing was the way he arrogantly assessed the men around him, none of whom met his eyes. Estrella looked into their faces, and saw that they were all looking at him, with expressions ranging from curiosity to something closer to disbelief. Embarrassed, he slowed to a standstill, until Mirak's hand on his shoulder lightly indicated he should stand in the same position as Adraman, but on the port side. Mirak then positioned himself to Estrella's left, and a pace closer to the crew, reflecting the stance of another blue-jacketed man, who stood at Adraman's right shoulder. Adramin's expression became more attentive, but he still contrived to look as if he wished he was somewhere else. Behind him Estrella heard slow, soft footfalls, and a moment later Oron came up to the companionway and stood between Adramin and Estrella, facing his crew. His long, hooded cloak fell straight down from his shoulders to his ankles, where it rippled slightly in the wind. Two white hands appeared through the armholes of the cloak, rose head-high, and lifted the hood off his white hair. The deliberate movement drew all eyes to him. "'Men and women of Cygnus,' said Oron in a light but carrying voice, "'we now know that Commander Estrella is dead. But before he died he sired a son, and called him by the same name he bore. That son, my grandson, stands before you now. He has much to learn of the ways of the sea before he can use the authority he has inherited. So that he can learn from me, he will be quartered aft, as is befitting his origin. So that he can be familiar with the ship, he will work with you. Estrella's son, Estrella, is a member of the family, and one of Cygnus. Mirak gave Estrella a little push forward, and Oron slowly turned his head to look at Estrella as if he expected him to say something. "'Master, men and women of Cygnus,' said Estrella, his voice sounding much firmer than he felt, "'all my life I have wanted to understand the life my father lived before he married my mother and fathered me. I know I have much to learn from my grandfather and from you.' The crowd of men moved slightly, and Estrella thought he saw interest and even approval in some of the faces of those in the front rank. Oron frowned at Estrella, glanced at the men facing him, and slowly nodded. He turned to Mirak. "'Boatman Mirak, you are charged with teaching Estrella seamanship from bowsprit to bumpkin. Sailing Master Adramin, you will instruct Estrella in the duties and customs of command, and introduce him to the art of sail. I will meet with him each day for the law of navigation. In time he may fully take up his father's position. In the meantime he will serve in nominal command of the port watch. First Mirak and then Adramin swept his right fist to his throat and intoned the formula of acceptance. 
Then, as attention focused on him, Astraea swallowed, looked at Oron steadily, and imitated their gesture. At your command, Astraea repeated. He didn't like the subservience in the formal phrase, but he couldn't resist the drama of the occasion. Oron raised one slim white hand to eye height and rotated it a harsh turn at the wrist. The lines of men broke up, some returning immediately to their tasks, some of them talking in small groups as they went back to whatever they'd been doing. Estrella stood wondering what to do next until Mirak turned towards him. Right. You see that line of studs in the deck? After them's the quarter-deck. Family territory. I can cross the line, and so can Batel, when we're going about our duties. But not the rest of the crew, unless they're under orders. You're lucky. You don't even have to salute. But just remember that the separation cuts two ways. Don't go wandering around unless you're with me. Now, let's get started. We'll begin with Peggy's part of the ship. First, we'll clean the skylight. They went below for rags and brushes, with which Estrella cleaned the long, transparent cover that humped over the centre line of the ship between the fore and mizzen masts. He had never seen so much or such thick glass. Some of it was in solid sheets as long as his forearm. Some was in smaller, random pieces held together with leading. As he worked to scour off dried salt spray, Mirak explained, "'Below the glass there's vats of sea-water. It's warm down there, like a warm fog, making water with this salt taken out. You can see drops trickling down the inside of the glass, down to where the green plants are growing. Keep you healthy!' When the cleaning was done, Mirak took him below into a space with a smell that made his eyes water and the back of his throat almost gag. Amidst a dozen evil-smelling bins stood an old woman no taller than Astraea's elbow. Peggy Lamborn, ship's gardener, meet Astraea, Estrea's son, said Mirak, wrinkling his nose at the smell. The ancient woman shook aside a strand of grey hair that had escaped the scarf over her head. She frowned at Astraea adding even more wrinkles to her leathery face. Her voice was creaky but confident. "'Your da had little time for me and me growings, but me plants kept him fit, same as they will you, young Strayer.' Astraea smiled at the familiar shortening of his name. "'That's not all we do in here. Out of my garden in comes our fresh water. You show him, Mirak.' Mirak pointed up to the skylight through overarching greenery twice a man's height above them. In the middle hung a long boat-shaped object from which came gurgling noises as the ship rolled and pitched. "'In there's seawater and, uh, well, other stuff,' said Mirak with a sniff. "'You probably noticed it's warm in here.' Astraea nodded and sweat dripped off his nose. "'The skylight is cool, so it sweats pure water that trickles down to the storage tanks.' "'And into me garden,' added Pegim. "'Now tell him how we get fuel to cook and run the lights.' "'Right. This is what we call Peg's Poop Show. Look here.' Pegim turned taps on pipes between big barrels from which came swishing and hissing noises and a formidably unpleasant smell. "'Are they 
"'Full of—' uh, asked Estrella. "'They sure are,' Mirak grinned. "'Did you use the head last night?' Estrella nodded. "'It all ends up down here. "'And what you're sniffing is a gas that burns with a nice blue flame "'to light your cabin and cook your porridge. "'So don't you ever turn on the tap under a lantern "'unless you're going to light it, and soon. First, it'll smell bad. "'More important—' If there's enough of it in your cabin, and then you strike a light, you'll blow yourself up, and a fair piece of the ship with you. "'Well, don't stand there grinning at me,' said Peggy. "'The pair of you, you've got work to do, turning it over.' Mirak slid back the lid on two of what Estrella had first taken for storage chests. He took a deep breath through his nose, and as his stomach churned, wished he had not. He swallowed, took the shovel Mirak gave him, and the pair of them shoveled waste from one stinking bin to the next. Estrella remembered cleaning out Jeb's stable. This was much worse. After some time, Mirak paused and grinned at him. Thirsty? he asked. Estrella looked at the condensed water above his head dubiously and sniffed. Rest easy, said Mirak, handing him a bottle. We catch our drinking water from the rain. Estrella took a swig. Surrounded as he was by overwhelmingly pungent smell, he could not taste the water, but it relieved his thirst. Eventually Mirak stowed his shovel in its place and indicated to Estrella to do the same. "'Well, you didn't up, Chuck,' said Peggy. "'That's summit. Next time you come down here I'll get you working on a bunch of me pochine.' Estrella nodded his head and tried to smile at the old woman who was looking up at him, her head on one side. He was clearly expected to ask about whatever potine was, but he held his mouth firmly shut. He followed Mirak out of Peggy's malodorous space back up the companionway. He made it to the upper deck with his teeth clenched together and stood on the weather side of the ship, breathing deeply. Mirak allowed him a few moments and then indicated the pumps where they could wash. They joined two lines of men who were trading positions alternately washing and pumping for each other. Mirak, are Will and Peggy related? No, but they're two of the three oldest aboard. We call them land-born because they were born on land before the wandering began. How long ago was that? Grandmaster's another land-born, and he's ten years short of the hundred. My grandfather is ninety? Estrella asked incredulously. He would have guessed no more than seventy-five or perhaps eighty. Mirak nodded, and then took his turn at one of the pumps, waving Estrella toward the other. Estrella pumped water for the man ahead of him in the queue, who happened to be Betel. Estrella nodded to him, searching for an appropriate greeting. "'Are you coming to me for hull integrity and damage control?' he asked in a flat, unemotional voice. "'Bugger off, Betel. You'll just confuse him.' said Mirak. Betel's expression did not change. He nodded and silently pumped for Estrella to put his head under the pump. Cold salt water ran into his nose and eyes, but when he straightened up he was rid of the smell from his morning's work. When he had shaken the water from his hair, Betel had disappeared, and when he looked around for Mirak, all he could see was the back of his head among a group of men who were disappearing down the forward companionway. Estrella saw Adramin watching, his thumbs hooked into his belt. At Estrella's questioning look, Adramin silently shrugged a shoulder towards the forward companionway. Estrella went where the gesture indicated. 
No sooner had he taken the first step below than he smelled fish stew and discovered he was ravenously hungry. He followed a line of men to a ship-wide space where grey and white-haired heads were bent over their food. The clatter of plates, forks, and knives mingled with indistinct conversation. When he paused at the door, wondering where he would pick up his share of the food, first one, then half a dozen, then all of the heads changed to faces as the men stopped eating to stare at him. The space was suddenly silent. "'I'll have your food sent to your cabin immediately,' said Mirak loudly, appearing hastily at his elbow and steering him back the way he had come. Then he spoke softly for Estrella's ears alone. "'It's not the custom for command rank to mess with the men. Leave now. Behave as if you were only hurrying your meal along.' He disappeared down a passage before Estrella could reply. Adramin was watching as Estrella climbed red-faced back on deck. "'You might have told me,' said Estrella. "'How was I to know your customs?' Adramin's narrow lips twisted into a wry smile, enjoying Estrella's embarrassment. When he was once more in his cabin, a short, stoop-shouldered man brought him a tray, which he placed on a drop-down table Estrella had not noticed. Then he produced a low, folding chair from behind the cabin door and waved a hand, silently, inviting him to sit. Estrella bent forward, trying to see the man's face while he thanked him, but the sailor ducked his head even lower and hurried away without answering. The cabin door closed, and Estrella faced a mug of dark, sour-tasting beer, a bowl of green leaves, none of which he could identify, a bowl of fish stew cooled by its trip from the galley, and a chunk of thick, hard biscuit. Estrella's meal was lukewarm and unpalatable, but he ate it anyway, feeling angry and frustrated. He recalled the look of surprise on the faces of the sailors at their midday meal, and the caution in Mirak's voice that recalled his injunction not to venture alone into the crew's part of the ship. Adramin had tried to shame him. He had guessed that Estrella did not know that those related to the master had to eat alone in their cabins, while the rest enjoyed each other's company, not to speak of hotter, better-tasting food. He silently cursed Adramin for sending him to an embarrassing mistake, and all the men of the sea for their inscrutable customs. Once again Estrella had been marked as a stranger. This time the familiar, bitter resentment he had always felt at being an outsider was multiplied because he had been deceived. Suddenly, more than anything, he wanted to speak to Lindy. His chest heaved, as if struggling against someone who was sitting on it, and his heart thumped. He thought he was going to be sick, but the focus of his discomfort was not his stomach. He heard his own voice as if he were listening to someone else. "'I'm sorry. I didn't want—oh, Lindy, I wish you were here.' He rolled back his sleeve and stared at the green stone on his bracelet, wondering if perhaps he might have made a connection between them the previous night. When the stone did not alter its green glow, doubt replaced hope, and with it came uncomfortable questions. What kind of a life was she living? And what was he inheriting, where Oron, Adramin, and the crew of Cygnus, the ones responsible for breaking up Spindrift and ravaging the village? He was afraid of what he might discover, but at the same time he knew that his words to the crew were true. He wanted to know how the green stones worked. His feelings were as double-edged as Oron's introduction. 
Oran only wants me for what he can make of me, and Adramin doesn't want me at all. And as usual, nobody cares a twisted fish-hook about what I want. Estrella spoke out loud at the moment a knock came on his door. Feeling foolish for talking to himself, he admitted the stooped man who took away his empty dish and cup, again without acknowledging Estrella's thanks. Moments later, Mirak arrived. He stood in the doorway and relayed an order. "'Down to the stern cabin, knock and wait for the master,' he said, and was gone before Estrella could question him. Estrella did as he was told, but before he could knock, Oron slid the door open in front of him. Estrella stepped back as his grandfather glided into the lamp-lit passage, his feet invisible below his cloak. One bony, long-fingered hand slid out from his cloak, indicating that Estrella was to follow. As he walked down the passageway behind Oron, Estrella felt the ship sway in its rhythmic dance through the water, but he could no longer hear the sea sounds around the hull, nor the subtle noises of wind in sails and rigging. The tall figure ahead of him walked smoothly down the dark passage, with none of the to-and-fro sway that marked the sailor's rolling gait. He stopped in front of the door that Mirak had called Forbidden. Estrella's palms dampened, and his fingers clenched. "'Enter,' ordered Oron, pointing a lean finger at the door. Estrella stretched out his fingers to where he expected a handle or a catch, but his hand only touched cool metal. He pushed, but the door did not open. His finger-ends tingled. He drew back his right hand and pushed again with his left. The metal was still cool to his touch, but this time Estrella felt a sudden thrill from his hand to above his elbow, where his bracelet encircled his arm. The door slid open noiselessly. Enter, Oron repeated. Estrella stepped through the doorway, and Oron closed the door behind them. "'Your clasp admitted us,' said Oron quietly in the darkness, "'or rather you and your clasp. This confirms that you are indeed of the family.' Estrella blinked several times in the semi-darkness as the old man drew a dark cloth towards him, revealing a round table-top. Oron pushed up his left sleeve to his elbow, revealing a bracelet with a greenstone like Estrella's. The master slid the bracelet to his wrist and passed it over the table. The light below his arm intensified, resolving itself into one central source and two other smaller lights. Estrella looked into the old man's deep-set eyes, lit eerily from below. "'Turn back your sleeve and reveal your clasp,' said Oran. "'Do not touch anything directly.' Put even your fingertip on an unguarded shipstone, and you may not live to do it again. Astrea unbuttoned his shirt cuff and uncovered his bracelet. The table resembled a circular pit, wider than a man's outstretched arms and deep as a full handspan. In its middle was a stone that blazed with a cold green fire. As his eyes adjusted to looking at the light, it occurred to Estrella that the stone would fit in the palm of his hand with his fingers barely encircling it. As he looked into the heart of the stone, he saw a white spear of light aligned with the ship's direction. He did not need Oron's warning. The stone was clearly dangerous. "'The light at the centre is Cygnus' shipstone,' said Oron. Estrella nodded. 
he turned his attention to a dim white line that wriggled across the stern half of the table. Estrella frowned as he made the connection to the sketches he'd made for a roaring jack on their way south. He was looking at the outline of the coast they were leaving behind. He stood on tiptoe to see the ragged line that marked the edge of the land. Letting his eye travel along the bays, fjords, and promontories on the chart, he began to recognize shapes and interpret them against what he'd seen from the molly. Teenmouth, Estrella muttered, as he saw what he took to be a river mouth behind a reef. They looked further north. The village is, he began, and then stopped, hoping he had been speaking softly enough that Oron had not heard him. How does it work? he asked, pointing to the bright line of the shore, and saying the first thing that came into his mind that would deflect a possible question about his village. The shoreline is drawn with ink that glows in the stone's light. The extent of the chart is adjusted here and here. Oron pointed to hand-sized wheels set into the sides of the table. But that's for later. What else do you see? As his eyes accustomed to the dim space, Estrella distinguished more sources of light. Three large ones on the table itself, all of them dimmer than the stone at the centre, some on a shelf above the table, each about the size of his thumbnail. Estrella stared at the stones and then back at Oron's face. The large lights are ships? Estrella asked. Oron nodded. They are the ship's echo stones. These larger ones on the chart table are attuned to the ship stones of the rest of the fleet. There used to be more, but now all but four are dark. Those small ones on the shelf, are they twinned to stones like mine? Oron did not follow Astrea's gaze. He spoke irritably, as if annoyed by the question, even though he conceded that it was reasonable by answering. The two brightest are echo-stones to the one you and I wear. The smaller one next to them is Adramin's. The lesser stones above the other ships don't show, because they are too close to their respective ship-stones. Never mind about them now. Attend to me. Today you will learn how to mark each ship's position. You will do this every day until we arrive together at the City of the Sea. Watch how this is done. Oron reached under the table and brought out what looked like a short walking stick. Holding it so that the hooked handle was away from him, one by one, he gently rolled the ship's echo-stones back and forth. Astrea saw that the surface of the table was some soft material that cupped around each stone, so that when Oron pushed with the stick, the fabric yielded, and then reformed like a nest when the stone reached a new position. The process was slow but steady. When Oron started, one stone had been to the right of where Cygnus' stone pointed. Now it was somewhat closer, and it glowed stronger than before. "'What is that ship's name?' Astrea asked. "'Silver Swan. I have yet to ascertain the exact position of Elusive and Spindrift. They are still out of range.' Astrea drew a breath to say what he knew about Spindrift, but Oron continued before he had a chance to interrupt. "'You must learn how to seek the other ship-stones to know where other great ships are. These two are Elusive's and Spindrift's twin-stones. Try with Elusive's stone. Spindrift is still too far away.' Astrea took the stick and wondering if there was any point to his trying, started to move the glowing stone back and forth. When it was even further ahead of Cygnus than Silver Swan, he thought he saw its light strengthen. 
"'Never mind,' said Oron wearily. "'Elusive cannot be far. She must be still out of range.' With a sudden confidence that surprised him, Astraea rolled the dull stone fully halfway around the circular table so that it was behind Cygnus' stone. The stone made itself a little pocket in the dark surface of the table, glowing with almost the same intensity as the one Oron had moved. Oron made a sound as if to say, lucky guess. Moving the echo stones is simple. The art is in how to shape a course for where we wish to go. Look at the stone on your arm. Where is the light point? In the same direction as that of Cygnus' shipstone. Yes. Now, can you redirect your stone's pointing light? Where? North? You can try, said Oron with a sigh that might have been the ghost of a laugh. Astraea frowned, concentrating as he had done when Lindy had been beside him, and as he had done the night before in his cabin. The light on his arm trembled slightly, and then swung confidently to point towards the port quarter. On the table in front of him, Cygnus' shipstone pulsed, and then more than doubled the light it shed. Oron's face contorted, which in the green light made him look all the more ghastly. He took a sudden step forward and gripped the side of the table. Astraea looked up from the bracelet on his arm and saw that Cygnus' shipstone was pointing in the same direction as his own. As he watched, he heard the rattle and squeak of the steering gear, and felt the ship start to change course. "'Put it back!' Oron's voice was sharp with surprise. "'Coax! Don't blast!' Astraea relaxed his concentration, and both his stone and the shipstone once more pointed in the direction the ship had been sailing. "'Are you all right, Estrella?' His words came just as Estrella was about to ask the same question. Instead of standing firm and erect, Oron was bent forward, clinging to the raised edge of the table. Astrea nodded. "'Do you know what you did?' "'I redirected the shipstone,' said Astrea. "'I started out to point my stone north, but then it was as if something stopped me, so I uh, pushed harder, and then it wasn't too difficult. Much easier than the first time I found north when I was ashore. You did more than that.' You also sent a pulse northward that would set off any shipstone that was in the way. Fortunately, none was. Oron straightened his back and raised his chin. Estrella saw his eyes gleam in the light from the table. Could I have harmed anyone? Anyone who is in line with you and the shipstone, standing outside the protection of a room such as this one, would have been shaken if he was in sight and at sea. There's much to confuse the stones on land. Mountains and even big rocks can be enough to hide them. Estrella nodded. He was not sure what he had done, but it had altered Oron's attitude towards him. The old man's voice was softer when he spoke again, as if revealing an arcane secret. Without men of our blood and line, even the great stones would be dead as pebbles on a beach. Dead as they will be when I am gone, if you are not here to continue. With you here, there is hope that the wandering will not end. What of Adramin? asked Estrella. He wears a stone, a toy beside yours, a grain of sand beside Cygnus' stone. Commanders wear them to find their way home. 
They are enslaved to the ship's stone, and their wearers can do little with them. You have a stone of command, as I do. Only you and I can enter this space. You have inherited the gift, but now you must learn how to use it, gently. He paused, and when he spoke again the wonder was gone from his voice, replaced by a dry cynicism. But you must also master the arts of navigation, which will take time, since I doubt you can do much more than count. Still, we must make a start. Come with me. Astraea was about to say that he could do a lot more than that, but continued his strategy of concealing what he knew. He watched as Oron carefully covered the circular table, and then followed as the master palmed the metal door open and led the way to the stern cabin. There Oron silently indicated a chair at the table where books, papers, and instruments were laid out between thin rails that stopped them from sliding should the ship pitch or roll. "'Do you recognize any of these?' "'The clock, of course,' said Estrella, "'except that it's more complicated than the ones at the village. "'They're not much use. "'No two of them say the same time. "'This one is accurate. "'And the rest of these? "'Rulers, dividers, protractor, and that's a compass. "'I played with one when I was a child. "'If you move it around, the needle swings this way and that. "'This one doesn't. It points north, when we're not too far north. Then, as you say, the needle swings this way and that. What's that? Astraea asked, pointing to a brass instrument with semicircular hoops around it, about the extent of a big man's hand. A sextant, Oron replied, an instrument whose use you must learn. Oron sighed and sat down slowly. First, you must clear your mind of any thought that this is a magical or supernatural process, whatever anyone says to you. They know nothing of what we do behind the forbidden door, and you must never speak of it. This prohibition also applies to the use of the sextant, which they may see from a distance as we make our observations, but which must never fall into their hands. Astraea frowned down his urge to challenge and argue. Navigation, Oron continued, sliding a piece of paper across the table in front of Astraea, is the application of certain mathematical and geometrical principles that you must learn to manipulate through the laws of logic. Let us begin. This is a triangle. It has three sides and three angles. What is more, it is a right-angled triangle, which has certain properties that make it possible for us to navigate. The principle is that Estrella could hold back no longer. If it's a triangle with a square angle in it, and you know how long one side is, or one other angle, you can figure out the remaining angle or side. They stared at one another across the table. Who taught you this? Scarm, Scar-arm Ian, an elder in my village. Perhaps this is not going to be quite as bad as I had feared, said Oron. Astraea's first lesson in the navigation arts of the men of the sea had begun. For the rest of the afternoon, Oron asked question after mathematical question, most of which Astraea could understand and often answer with confidence. Finally the old man nodded. "'We can build on that,' he said. "'Now you may leave until the evening meal, which you will take here with me and your cousin. First. Shave, 
there are no landsman's beards aboard this ship. And give me that ridiculous dagger at your waist. There's no knife-fighting aboard the sickness. Estrella drew the knife Damon had given him and handed it hilt-first to Oron. The old man stood, hefted the weapon in evaluation, turned and with one smooth gesture threw it out the open scuttle into the ship's wake. Estrella frowned. The knife had been a generous gift, and what was more, he'd enjoyed the feeling of its weight around his waist, and at the same time felt a little ashamed of liking a weapon that had no other use than killing or wounding. What Oron had done was both an annoyance that he no longer had a valuable possession, and a subtle relief in that he was no longer proclaiming himself a knife-fighter. "'Get a proper seaman's knife from the stores,' said Oron. "'I have my father's,' said Estrella, showing it to Oron as he spoke. Oron grunted, took the knife, and turned it over in his hands as if trying to feel something within its bone handle, and then returned it to Estrella. "'More proof.' he muttered to himself, then spoke commandingly. Now go. Estrella wondered for a moment if he should salute, decided against it, and let himself out of the cabin. Closing the door behind him, he took a deep breath and stood still. Then he climbed up onto the deck, walked astern, and stood staring into the wake. The session had shown him that Oron believed the ability to navigate was somehow linked to the family lineage, which, whether or not it was true, meant that the old man needed Astrea's power over the green stones. You have been listening to the Astrea Trilogy, Book Two, The Men of the Sea, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0.